story. It's good, to, it's good to see all of you here on Easter Sunday, and it's good to hear some of your stories and experiences over Lent. One of the things that I really enjoyed over the Lent season was, was how uh, I talked about it a few different times with, with uh, other, others of you and, and friends in the church, and just realizing I appreciated how we were doing this together, and that meant something to me. And over the course of the week where we were supposed to park far away and then pray when we walked in, we, I went out for a supper with a few uh, couples here uh, from, for my birthday, and we all ended up parking way in the back corner of the parking lot. Um, and I think that was more due to the fact that the parking lot was full. Yeah, there we were. And then we stayed way past closing because none of us had our kids with us, and so we didn't want to leave. And we're just chatting. And so when you leave the restaurant, all of a sudden you see three cars parked way in the distance. Like, who's, who are the psychos that parked all the way out there? And then it was us, and we're talking about that, and then it became a bragging competition of who was actually parked a little bit further away. And then we realized, well, that was just the person who was the latest to the, to the reservation. Uh, and w- whether we were joking about it, the fact that we were mindful and that we were doing this together meant something to me. And of course, Lent is a season that's just designed to prepare us for Easter. And so we've arrived, not just to remind us or to, to have this chronological countdown to Easter, but to spiritually prepare us for this Sunday in which we get to celebrate that the tomb is empty. And I love Easter, and I find that so many of the different things we say and do to be encouraging, and yet we have this, these odd traditions at the same time, and I found Easter eggs have always been a peculiar part of the holiday celebration. And eggs are not just a small part, they are everywhere at Easter time. And all sorts of different types of eggs. There's the real eggs that you decorate, the plastic eggs you fill with goodies and you hunt for, or your kids hunt for, and then you steal from their goodies after. And and you got the tinfoil-wrapped chocolate eggs, the mini eggs, and the cream-filled eggs. (laughs) The cream-filled eggs, those are really good. What What do Easter eggs have to do with the Easter story? There's actually a very good reason why eggs are a part of the celebration. But in order for us to understand that reason, we need to remind ourselves of the Easter story, something we're going to do together today. So you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. This is going to be the account of the resurrection story that we follow along with for most of our time this morning. And it was morning, early morning, when the scene opens for this story. It was at dawn of the first day of the week, a dawn on Sunday morning, and two women named Mary are going to visit the tomb of Jesus. The chronology of this Holy Week has been marked by our gatherings together. We came on Palm Sunday to celebrate and to remember the triumphal entry of Jesus, and Pastor Earl walked us through that in a great way. And then we gathered just recently on Good Friday to remember the the death and the crucifixion of Jesus who died for our sins. And and Jesus was laid to rest in that tomb on Friday. And then on on Saturday, the Sabbath, it was like the world was holding its breath. Everyone was waiting. And then Sunday morning at dawn, the two Marys go to visit Jesus' tomb. Uh, One Mary is given to us as Mary Magdalene. She was an an early follower of Jesus. And there's so many different things that maybe tradition uh, has, has said about Mary Magdalene. All that we know for sure is that she was an early follower of Christ who had demons cast out of her. And by all accounts, especially with her being uh, so involved at the end of Jesus' life and ministry, she followed him faithfully ever since that time. Then we have the other Mary, <laughs> the other one. Uh, some people might not believe that this is the Mary, the mother of Jesus. But sometimes I find that hard to believe because you think that they would call her Mary, the mother of Jesus, not just the other one, you know? 
sometimes the way that it's phrased makes a huge difference. And so this is most likely the mother of the apostle James the Lesser. Mary was a very common name at that time. So she's referred to in Matthew 27 as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and likely not the mother of Jesus. But regardless of that, there are two women named Mary who have been devout followers of Jesus Christ, and they are coming to pay their respects to his tomb early Sunday morning. And when they arrive, they find something very unexpected. They're already worried about the stone that's rolled in front of the tomb. And for, for those of you who are with us on Good Friday, we recognize that the stone was designed to be immovable. It would need a group of people. And once it was set in place and sealed, it was supposed to stay there so that no one could mess with the tomb or desecrate it or anything like that. And so that as the Marys are on their way to see the tomb of Jesus, they have this problem of the stone. Mark captures this uh, in his gospel in Mark 16, 3, where they're talking to themselves on their way and they say, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? They want to go there. They really want to see Jesus' body, but they have no idea how that's going to be possible. Matthew, in, in, in the account that we're reading together, gives another obstacle to rolling the stone away. Not only is it huge and immovable, but the Pharisees have, have wanted to stop any of the followers of Jesus, his disciples from, from not only visiting, but from stealing the body and claiming to ha- have him be resurrected. And so they go and they ask uh, Pilate to have a guard on the tomb. This is what we read in Matthew 27, verse 62, just before the resurrection Sunday. So the next day, that is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the Pharisees were worried because they knew that Jesus had claimed he would rise again from the dead. And so they went and they sealed and secured the tomb. Now that when they set a seal on the tomb, this is not something that made the tomb harder to get into, not a seal that made the stone harder to roll away. It would have been like a wax seal you would see on an an envelope of a very important document. And as soon as that seal is broken, you know that it's been opened, it's been tampered with. That's the seal on the tomb. And it's made secure, further secure by this guard of soldiers. Now we just read this story and so we can debunk a myth that happens often at Easter. The soldiers around the tomb of Jesus were not Roman soldiers. They asked for Roman soldiers. And what did Pilate say? No, you have your own soldiers, use them. There was a temple guard, almost like an honor guard for the religious elite. Uh, Not really enough to do uh, Rome any harm, but they had a few that they were allowed to bear arms. And those temple guards were the ones that were around Jesus' tomb. So if you see any Easter plays or cantatas or pictures and there's Roman guards by the tomb, you can say, ha, that's not accurate. And now you know, you know, you know. All of this to say that it was impossible for there to be any tampering with the body of Jesus. And these followers of Christ coming to pay their respects had all of these obstacles in the way. The tomb was sealed by the stone. It was guarded by the guards from the temple. It was impossible for men or for women to do anything about it. But clearly not impossible for God. Because when they get there, they witness something that would have been extraordinary. An angel comes down from heaven, and there's an enormous earthquake. And the angel rolls the stone away and then sits on top. 
which I think is just kind of his mic drop moment. He's like, hey, I'm here. How's it going? It's going to sit on the stone. He gets it out of the way. And that earthquake's important because it would immediately bring us back to that moment on the cross when Jesus died and there was an earthquake and the temple veil was torn and this earthquake was much the same. It's still an act and a move of God, of supernatural power that takes that sealed and secure a stone and rolls it to the side. And then an angel who's sitting there is, is a sight to behold. He is a fearsome sight. He, he looks like lightning and he's clothed in white like snow. And for, for, for me, as someone who walked with you through the book of Revelation in, in the fall, we know that this is exactly what angels look like. This is even evocative of what the Son of Man looks like. This is divine power in its fullness. And the women are not the only ones that witness this. The guards are trying to do their best, but they are not meant to fight back against an act of God. And so when they see this angel, they are terrified. And they are so afraid that they start to shake. And they're so afraid that not only do they shake, but they fall down and they faint like dead men. Never underestimate what it would be like to see an angel. The women are also afraid, but the angel addresses them directly. Matthew 28, verse 5. But the angel said to the women, notice how he doesn't say anything to the guards. They're fainted, they're gone. He's not really concerned with them. But to the women, he says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Church, he's not here. Why? For he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, so there you will see him. See, I have told you. And this message now, confirms everything to the followers of Jesus. This message that the angel gives reveals a truth that changes absolutely everything. He is not here, for he is risen, as he has said. Jesus is alive. He was dead. He was not breathing. He was not here among the living, and now he is alive again. It is the miracle of miracles. And all of this was according to God's plan, and one plan that Jesus was aware of, and then he told his followers about numerous times. And if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you will see four instances where Jesus very specifically talks about his resurrection. Matthew 16, 21, 17, 23, and 2019. But the angel is referring to his quote very recently in Matthew 26, 32, where he told his disciples right before he died, but be, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And, and we know that because the angel is confirming both of these things. He says, Jesus said he would be raised, and he is. And he said he will go to Galilee, and that's where he is. Go and meet him. It has all accomplished just the way he said it would. And for further proof, the angel gives that invitation to the Marys. Come, see the place where he lay. And this is important because the Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other one, they were really important witnesses to the whole event of the Passion. They were with Jesus and they saw him die. They were at the cross. That's listed for us in Matthew 27, 55. They saw him breathe his last and then breathe no more. They witnessed his side pierced with a spear and he did not react. There was no faking. There was no forgery. Jesus was dead and they knew it. First-hand witnesses. And they followed Jesus and saw him buried in the tomb. 
That is what we're told in Matthew 27, 61. They went to this exact same location, the exact same tomb. They saw Jesus' body that they knew was dead, wrapped and prepared and placed to rest, presumably forever. They knew he was dead. They knew he was buried. And now they visit that exact same location and the stone is supernaturally rolled away and Jesus is not there. The tomb is empty. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary know and they are the witnesses of each one of those steps. Nothing was taken for granted. Nothing was faked. Jesus was dead and now he is alive. One detail of this story that I really love is is just to ask this question, why did the stone need to be rolled away? It wasn't for Jesus' sake. He was already gone. His resurrected body, he doesn't really have um, a lot to say uh, or a lot to do with or, or time to deal with doors and locks and all that stuff. He was out of that tomb. He went to, you know, just uh, kind of bombing on his disciples a few different times. Like Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away. God did it for the sake of his followers. He did it for us to say, look, look where he used to be. He is not here. He is risen. The tomb was already empty. And the witness now of these women, and shortly thereafter, the disciples, as they spread the word and they go see for themselves, this witness became a problem for the Pharisees. And one thing I truly appreciate about the the Gospel of Matthew is that he goes to great lengths to give this proof and this evidence for the, the, the trustworthiness of the resurrection. He establishes the, witnesses of the, uh, the witness of the two Marys. He acknowledges the concerns of the Pharisees ahead of time through the setting of the guard. And he exposes the attempted cover-up of the Pharisees afterward. We read this in Matthew twenty-eight eleven. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. What a story that would have been. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel... They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole, away while we were, uh, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So there was a cover-up. The Pharisees paid hush money to the soldiers. Like, just pretend you were lazy soldiers and that the disciples did this and, and it won't go too badly for you. Accept this money tell this story, and then maybe, maybe, maybe we can stop this truth from spreading. Well, a couple thousand years later, how well did this cover-up go? It did not go well. It changed everything for the religious leaders because it changed everything for the world. And Matthew has given us situational evidence and first-hand witness evidence to the fact that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And what do we do with that? That matters greatly. What do you believe about the empty tomb? What evidence do you find compelling? This is one of the most important decisions you will ever make because that empty tomb changes everything. But the story and this experience for Mary Magdalene and the other one, it was not quite over yet. They saw Jesus die. They saw him buried. They saw the empty tomb. And then they get the greatest gift of all. They see Jesus alive and well and resurrected. And I can only imagine what that experience would have been like. Let's read it for ourselves, starting in 28 verse 8. So the Marys departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. (laughs) And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
So the women, after experiencing this with the angel, and they see the empty tomb, they have these huge, complex, conflicting emotions running through them. They're full of fear and great joy. And both of these would have been very natural responses. A fear, they could have been afraid of any number of things. They could have been uh, still trembling in fear from having seen that supernatural angel and that act of God of rolling that stone away. Uh, They could be afraid after um, what the authorities might do now that the guards didn't work and Jesus' body is gone. They they definitely or certainly could have been afraid of, of the retribution that might come down on them. I mean, they killed Jesus. Tried to. Did. Didn't quite work. Now, now I am a follower of Christ. What's going to happen to me? All of these things could have been sources of fear for those women and the other followers of Jesus. And yet that's accompanied by great joy because the one whom they loved that they saw die is now alive again. The Messiah whom they had trusted to be the hope of the world was not defeated, but he is actually victorious. And if Jesus is alive again, what does that mean for me as a follower of his? Fear and great joy. And with all of these huge emotions warring in their souls, Jesus comes and says, hello. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Greetings. That's a bit of an undersell, if if you're asking me. And that that greetings was a very common uh, greeting in in Koine Greek, which is the language that's captured in the New Testament and what was written down in. And when they see Jesus and they hear his greeting, they know who he is, they fall down at his feet and they worship him. And that that act of falling down, of grabbing his feet and worshiping, that is an act that is, deser- that is reserved for the divine alone. And if there was any doubt left in their mind whether Jesus was God, the resurrection leaves no more doubt. There's no more room to doubt. There's no more room for discussion. Jesus is the Son of God. He has overcome death. And he is worthy of worship. In response, they fall down at his feet and worship him. And he says, do not be afraid, which leads to further instructions as what to do next. To tell the disciples and to say, hey, this work has just begun. Let's get this party started. That's my own version of events, really. Here's something that I found really, really neat in my study. We have these particular emotions that Matthew's highlighted. They're full of fear and great joy. Do you want to know what that word for greetings is? If we were to take that exact, it's meant to be a greeting, but the word used for greetings here is the word for rejoice. It is the exact same word that Paul uses, Greek word that Paul uses in Philippians 4.4, 4, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And so we have, church, we have this picture of these women and they are overwhelmed with fear and with great joy. And knowing this, the first two things that Jesus says to them is rejoice. Do not fear. Rejoice. Do not fear. The victory is at hand. The war has been won. Life has overcome death. Rejoice. Do not fear. I do not believe that those two words or commands were left for the ears of the Marys alone. We are called to respond to the empty tomb, to respond to the resurrection in the exact same way. All right, pastor, what do Easter eggs have to do with Jesus? (laughs) I've been artfully dodging that question up until now, or not so artfully, depending on what you thought of the sermon so far. What do Easter eggs have to do with any of this? Well, quite simply, Easter eggs symbolize the source of our rejoicing because they symbolize the empty tomb. 
There was a practice many, many years ago in early Orthodox churches where Easter eggs were handed out during the Paschal Vigil. So the early Orthodox church would get together not just on Good Friday, but they would get together on Saturday, that day of waiting, and they would hold a vigil, a waiting Sunday morning in which they would remember that Christ rose again. And during this vigil, they would hand out Easter eggs, which would symbolize that empty tomb that they were longing to remember. And again, the empty tomb is vital to our hope as Christians. It's vital for us to trust the historic account. And I appreciate, again, those great pains that Matthew went to, to persuade everyone who reads to the fact that Jesus truly rose from the dead. He walked on this earth in history. And he was fully man, he was fully God, and he truly and completely died on the cross for our sins. And then he was bodily resurrected from the grave and he walked out of that tomb, stone or no stone in the way. Jesus was dead and now he is alive and that happened. And we know because we see the firsthand account of those women who were witnesses to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We know because even though the tomb was heavily guarded, it could not stop the act of God. We know because Jesus himself appeared before Mary and the disciples and many more of his followers. And we know because the guards were were bribed to tell an alternate story. And we know that he lives because the evidence is at work and alive in us today. This happened, and it needs to happen. Because the evidence and witness of the empty tomb remains an important reminder for us today. It's still a requirement that we believe this truly did occur. I'm going to draw our attention to 1 Corinthians 15 as we wrap up here this morning. Paul had a lot to say about the importance of these events as well. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that, um, and that he appeared to uh, Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul saying, I know this is true because I have seen him and my friends have seen him and our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ have seen him. Jesus is alive. And we are now very far removed from these events, but these witnesses were not. They saw with their own eyes. Easter egg symbolizes the empty tomb. And more than that, Easter eggs symbolize the new life available in Christ. Egg is a very good symbol when you think about it. That hard outer shell is a good symbol for the tomb. And yet, within each and every egg is a capacity for new life. And at some point, that new life will break free from the shell, just like we can see in this picture. It's pretty cute, hey? The empty tomb and the new life within. The hope that we have of a new life in Christ hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise again, then our hope is in vain. This is what Paul continues to teach in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be the most pitied. And if I were to say, let's bow together and pray. If that's, if that's where the sermon ends, what does Easter mean then? If that's where the story ends, why do we bother doing what we do? If that's the last word, then we're the most to be pitied. But that's not where Paul ends his argument. The very next word, but in fact, <laughs> but in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Church, did you hear that? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. The tomb is empty because Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. And that matters because now he and he alone is our path to true, eternal, new life. Jesus did rise. He is the first fruits, the first of many. He has gone before where we all hope to one day follow. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too share this hope. And that changes truly everything. I've got a, a friend that I, I knew from Stonewall. His name is Paul. And uh, Paul has, oh, I can't remember. It's either seven or eight kids. I have a hard time keeping up with him. And last year, he got a, a very horrifying diagnosis of terminal cancer, a rare form of aggressive cancer over a year ago. And he has spent the last year fighting for his life. He has traveled all across North America and Canada, United States, Mexico, doing all different types of treatment, anything he can do to try to have a little bit more time on this earth. Why would Paul do that? Is he trying to somehow avoid what happens next? Is he, is he scared of death? Is he having a crisis of faith? That's not all at all the way that he's carried himself. He gives updates, and I'm part of his updates. And what he does is every time he goes and gets these treatments all across North America, he goes in on a mission. And he shares with anyone and everyone who will listen the eternal life available in Christ. He knows that the battle is won. He knows that no matter what happens in his cancer diagnosis, that he has life. And he is using this as an opportunity to go into some of the darkest places that we can know about for so many others who are, again, overwhelmed with this idea and the reality of their mortality right around the corner. And he says, in Jesus, you can have life too. Because that empty tomb changes everything. And no matter what, no matter what situation or diagnosis our future holds for us here on earth. We have a life that can never be taken away. Because Jesus is alive, we can face all things, even death, knowing that our hope extends beyond the grave. And there is nothing and no one else that can give you this life and can give you that type of hope. So as the music team comes up, we want to sing just a couple songs in response this morning. And I want to leave you with a question. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? 
Do you believe that he is the only way to eternal life? Are you really, truly alive? And church, let me impress this on you now. This is so much more than religion. What's going on here? What's at stake is so much more than church. It's so much more uh, than just repeating a sinner's prayer after the pastor. It's so much more than going to church because your parents make you. It's so much more than just keeping up appearances and, and, and tithing and attending and going to Bible study. It's so much more than just a worldview or what you believe is right and wrong. This is about being spiritually dead and through the miracle of Jesus being truly, well, completely, fully, and eternally alive. That's what's at stake. That is something to not fear and to rejoice. So let us stand and sing and hopefully believe.